when you think of ramblers, what immediately comes to mind for you? Cars. Uh huh. What else? Old houses. Oh, that ramble. Ah, nice. I've seen some churches that ramble too, let me tell you. Muskrat. Okay. This generally isn't the nicest term we have in the English language. Uh, in fact, there's a, um, there's a song, a rather famous song, that begins, I'm a ramblin' wreck, from Georgia Tech. I'm not going to go on. <laughs> rambling seems to be associated with drinking songs. Um, rambling man, you might go from one place to another, drinking here and there and another. Well, the rambler we're going to talk about today is none of those things. Neither a car, nor a house, nor a drinking song, nor did he graduate from Georgia Tech. This is many years before that. Instead, this is a man who left his island home and found a new calling as a sharer of the good news of Jesus Christ, a rambling evangelist. His name was Yosis, a Greek form of Joseph, and he was a Levite who came from Cyprus, the Isle of Copper. Cyprus was a major seaport in those days. Trading ships from all over the Mediterranean would stop at its ports to restock on supplies and trade news and goods with other captains. Olive oil and wine were some of the major commodities that Cyprus made themselves, and they traded this extensively. Now, though we don't know much about Yosef before he uh, first appears in Acts chapter 4, there are some traditions that say he was a Pharisaic disciple in Jerusalem who became a part of the larger 70 apostles mentioned at the beginning of Acts. In any case, he was, without a doubt, an early follower of Jesus and earned the nickname Bar Nechma or son of encouragement, son of consolation, in Aramaic, bar nechma. Now, if nechma sounds a little bit familiar to you, I congratulate you on your Hebrew knowledge. It is also part of the root of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the prophet, God is my comfort, God is my encouragement, bar nechma, son of encouragement. This all ties together. However, Greek people have this odd tendency in those days to add endings onto words and try to make it fit into their language a little better, so he became known as Barnabas, Barnabas, Barnabas. And throughout the rest of Acts and in Paul's letters, that's how he's named, Barnabas, over and over, son of encouragement. Now, Barnabas is known as the encourager, and his first act recorded in the Bible is to sell his land and present the money to the disciples, presumably to be used in supporting the early church. Note a few things here. First, that he owned land around Jerusalem suggests that he was rather well off. This was an expensive area to own a field. And presumably, he'd lived in Jerusalem long enough to go about buying a field nearby, though he was originally from Cyprus. This suggests that despite our wonderful image, he was probably in his 40s at the beginning of the story and maybe by the end in his 60s or 70s. This is not a spring chicken uh, that we're talking about. Sadly, finding pictures of people in their 40s rambling through the ancient world is a little bit more difficult to find than you might think. 
Now, his example of selling his land stands in contrast to the story that immediately follows this, the famous Ananias and Sapphira, who sell their land, offer only a portion of the proceeds to the church, and they brag to all their friends about how wonderful they are, and uh, they come to a pretty bad end while asking for recognition. Barnabas then, in contrast, sells the land, donates the proceeds, and takes a humble backseat to the Twelve. Says, here, do with this what you can. Let's work together. You could say he rambles off into the background for a little while. But Barnabas's story comes back into focus a few chapters and years later. After the martyrdom of Stephen, many apostles left Jerusalem and spread through the Roman world reaching Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Though these early evangelists left their home because they feared for their lives, they spread the good news in the synagogues wherever they ended up. To give you an idea of the time frame here, their converts in Cyprus made their way to Antioch, saw that Jews there were already being taught about Jesus. So they decided to take a radical step and start preaching to the Gentiles directly. So we see that this is moved from to Cyprus by boat, presumably, it's an island, from Cyprus to Antioch, and there's already preaching going on in both of these places. There's some time that has elapsed. At this point in the story, Peter had already accepted the Gentile Cornelius as a Christian convert, but Cornelius had sought out Peter. Peter didn't seek him out. Now, for the first time, followers of Jesus' way were seeking out Gentiles as well as Jews. When those in Jerusalem heard what was happening up in Antioch, they sent Barnabas to figure out what was up and make sure that everything was actually going okay. From this, we can figure out that Barnabas was pretty well respected and that the Jerusalem church was pretty savvy, sending their Cypriot disciple to see what the other Cypriots had been up to in Antioch. Also, Barnabas had impressed the Jerusalem church by his support of Paul after his conversion, who was approved to preach and teach based primarily on Barnabas's support. So Barnabas travels up to Antioch and finds that these new Gentile converts are sincere in their baptismal vows and that God's grace covered even them. This is somewhat surprising. There's a reason that the church uh, elders in Jerusalem sent some people to find out what was going on. Antioch was uh, something of a, a city with a reputation in the ancient world. It was a center of gambling and cultic prostitution of worldliness and trade, and it was the third biggest city on the Mediterranean after Rome and Alexandria. Antioch was a big deal. Think of it like 1920s Chicago mixed with 1960s Las Vegas. This gives you an idea of kind of the reputation it had in that era. This is where Gentiles were first preached to, first considered as worthy as, to be as worthy as Jews to be sought out for mission and teaching. And it's also where this mix of Jews and Gentiles who all followed the way of Christ got their unique name, Christiani. Though it was intended as a derisive dismissal, little messiahs. Oh, look at those little messiahs over there, all thinking they're great, Christiani. It followed that the newly christened Christians took the name 
and claimed it as an encouragement for themselves. Perhaps Barnabas himself, son of encouragement, realized the potential in the name. Have you lived up to being a little Christ today? I can just see the sermons built on this over time. In any case, Antioch was too big of a city for Barnabas to teach everyone by himself, but he remembered Paul and traveled to Tarsus to get him personally. Together then, the two of them spent a year preaching and teaching to Jews and Gentiles alike, while the church supported them and their ministry. After that year, they returned to Jerusalem with money raised for feeding of the poor in Jerusalem, which had just suffered a famine. Antioch was now supporting the mother church in Jerusalem. When they returned to Antioch, they brought with them John Mark, a very young man whose mother's house seemed to be the center of the Christian church in Jerusalem. Fascinating stuff. And is, John Mark is also some sort of a relative of Barnabas, though we don't know exactly how they're related. It is also this John Mark that is the traditional author of the Gospel of Mark. But that's still far into the future at this point. Barnabas and Paul are now commissioned by the church in Antioch to go and spread the good news around the ancient world. It's fascinating that the laying on of hands here takes place in Antioch and not in the Jerusalem church, where presumably most of the disciples, the 12 disciples, still are. Still, it's presumably the center of the Christian church in Jerusalem at that time. In any case, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark head back to Barnabas's home island of Cyprus. Now, I don't know whether Barnabas had been homesick or if he wanted to see how things had changed at home in all the years that he'd been away. But after landing in Salamis and meeting with the followers of Jesus there, the three rambling evangelists worked their way to the capital city of Paphos, where the Roman governor had his palace. Paphos was famous for being a major center of worship of the goddess Venus. For Barnabas, Paul, and John Mark, to head there suggests just how seriously they took God's protection. They could almost be assured of persecution from both pagan religious leaders and Roman governmental authority, but they believed so strongly in the way of Jesus that they still headed into the most difficult part of the island to preach the good news. There, they were confronted not by pagans, as they perhaps had feared, but by a Jewish sorcerer who, in the presence of the Roman governor, uh, was miraculously struck blind for a season by Paul's condemnation of him for practicing magical arts as a Jew. He was struck blind. The governor, Sergius Paulus, chose to follow Jesus that moment and becomes the first Roman governor to follow Jesus, the first Christian governor that we have record of. This is when Luke stops referring to Paul as Saul and starts referring to him as Paul. And also when John Mark leaves Barnabas and Paul to head back to Jerusalem for a while. Barnabas and Paul go on to Pamphylia, Perga, Antioch, Dissidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe all towns and cities within the Roman province of Galatia, to whom the letter to the Galatians would later be written. 
Some of the towns listened to their message, but others chased them out. In any case, Barnabas and Paul continued spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, that God's grace and love had overcome sin and death, and that forgiveness was available to everyone who followed Jesus' way. It's to these communities that Paul's letter to the Galatians was written sometime later in this journey. And it's important to note that they went back to these towns. It wasn't like they went into one, stopped for a while, and went on to the next, and never came back to that first one. They were kind of traveling around these cities for a little while. Eventually, they say, hey, our work is done. We've set up elders in each of these churches. They can handle the the day-to-day work in these churches. We're going back to Antioch. You see, the rambling evangelists believe in God's saving power. Barnabas is humble enough to let Paul take the lead and even seems to be shepherding him in these travels. Through them, Antioch, Cyprus, and Galatia become bastions of Christianity, filled with people led by the Holy Spirit and doing their best to live into that name of Little Messiah, first given to the apostles at Antioch. Yet, they were not to last as a missionary team. In our last mention of Barnabas in Acts, we learn that Paul and Barnabas wanted to return to the churches they had started. Barnabas wants to bring John Mark, his kinsperson, along again. But Paul felt like John Mark had abandoned them before, so how could they possibly trust this John Mark character? They get into it so bad that they end up breaking their missionary ties and going separate ways. Barnabas and John Mark head off to Cyprus again, see how things are going there, while Paul and Silas head up to Syria and Galatia. The rest of Acts, Paul and Silas are the focus, while Barnabas and John Mark sadly disappear from the record. I wonder what happened on Cyprus, how things went there, what is the rest of the story? I'm not the only one who's wondered this. There are uh, writings from the third and fourth centuries that talk about the Acts of Barnabas, the Gospel of Barnabas. And I was so excited to bring some of those quotes to you, but they're really anti-Semitic, and it's just not appropriate um, to bring in any of these stories into the church setting. But people wondered what happened to them. While Barnabas may be something of a minor character in our minds, he was a major character in the early church. And St. Barnabas still has a feast day in those churches that celebrate feast days. It's a big deal as far as all of that. Even though Luke kind of changes the focus away from Barnabas and over onto Paul, it's clear that he liked Barnabas and raised him up as an example. Barnabas is described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith in chapter 11. And and Luke had previously described only two other people, Joseph of Arimathea and Tabitha Dorcas, as good people. These are the people that Luke has lifted up. It's clear that through Barnabas, the early church spread far and wide, through encouraging messages, through Barnabas's belief in everyone he met, whether they had been persecuting Christians months before, whether they uh, had only uh, messed up once or twice or many times in their life, Barnabas stood up with them. This is perhaps something of the character of the early church, too. Robin Gallagher Branch writes, 
perhaps these character traits of Barnabas, his goodness, faith, big-heartedness, courage, generosity, humbleness, self-sacrifice, open-mindedness, boldness, and the fact that he was full of the Holy Spirit were also stamped onto early believers that he encountered. If so, Luke's praise marking this early church leader also applies to the early church. And I would hope that it could apply to us, the later church, too. And so, may it be well and so with you as a little Messiah. May you follow in the way of Jesus, offering encouragement to the downhearted and good news to the outsider. May you be filled with the Holy Spirit, going boldly where God leads you. And may God's protective love surround you, keep you healthy enough and humble enough to fulfill God's call in your life. Amen.